During this Advent season, we've been looking at psalms which point us to the birth of Christ, or the incarnation of Christ in particular. Psalms that give us God's intention behind sending his son, his eternal son, to dwell in our midst and to take on human flesh among us. So I'm going to ask that you turn with me to Psalm 40. This is a psalm of David, and the whole psalm is not messianic, but verses 6 to 8, which is part of today's reading, is a portion that the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, says, pointed us to Christ and to his mission in coming, being born as a baby and living among us as both fully God and fully man. I'm going to read the first 10 verses of Psalm verse 40, Psalm chapter 40, the first 10 verses. Please give your full attention. This is God's word. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Watching television was different for me when I was growing up as a child and a teenager in the 1970s. We didn't have streaming services like Netflix back then with access to thousands and thousands of programs. We didn't have cable TV with hundreds and hundreds of options of TV programs. We had an antenna on top of a pole that was attached to our house. And with that antenna, we were able to get maybe about six or seven stations, broadcast stations. And in our living room, we had a little electronic electric box that was used to turn that pole because you couldn't just set the antenna in one direction to get all six or seven channels. You had to turn the antenna to point at either Altoona or Pittsburgh or Erie to get the channels that we wanted to get. And if that little box wasn't working, one of us kids were sent outside in the cold to turn the pole by hand, and our dads, our dad would yell out the window and say, stop there. 
Boy, we had it tough. <laughs> so what I'm trying to say is we had limited options, so different from what we have today. And the TV programs that I remember from my childhood, the ones that stick with me, are the ones that were actually had been on regular network television in the, in the late 60s, but then were syndicated to local stations and were played every day. There were half-hour sitcoms that played. I got home from school at 4, and Dad took over the TV at 6. So I had two hours to watch TV, and during that two hours, I would watch four half-hour sitcoms that were on every day. And these were classic TV, things like Leave it to Beaver and My Three Sons and Gilligan's Island and Hazel. These were shows I knew every episode. I watched them multiple times during those couple of after-school hours. But one of the shows that I knew very well was the show called I Dream of Jeannie. I Dream of Jeannie, the premise of the show was that an astronaut, astronauts were real big back in the 60s, an astronaut named Tony came back from space and he landed in the ocean, but he landed off course and they didn't know where he was and he ended up washing up, his capsule ended up washing up on the beach of a de deserted island. And on that deserted island, he found a fancy bottle and when he opened the bottle, out popped a genie. A genie named Genie, which was convenient. Um, but Genie then was so thankful from, for being delivered from centuries and centuries of being trapped in that bottle, she pledged her total devotion to Tony, that he was now her master. And her whole purpose in living was to serve, to, to serve his will, to do whatever he wanted. And so the rest of the show, if you have never seen it, is about Tony going back to his normal life and trying to hide the fact that he's got a genie following around, you know, you know, fawning all over him and seeking to do every whim and desire that he, that he had. Well, I know that I Dream of Genie wasn't great art and it wasn't profound, but I was reminded of that show when I was studying Psalm 40 this week because Psalm 40 talks about obedience righteousness, but it talks about the desire behind it. I delight to do your will, oh my God. I delight to do the will of God. Is that really our attitude? The title of the psalm says it was a psalm of David. And in this psalm, we have an emotional testimony, a personal testimony from King David about a time when God delivered him from difficult circumstances, from some kind of captivity. In the first part, in the first three verses, he tells how the Lord delivered him. And he speaks in vague terms, but basically he just wants to say, this is what happened. I was in dire straits. I was in a hopeless situation, and God delivered me from that hopeless situation. And then the second part, verses 4 and 5, and then also, if you skip to the last part, verses 9 and 10, those are where he actually gives testimony. Some parts of it are like an actual transcript of what he might have said before the congregation of God's people to give testimony to how God had delivered him. But then the third part, from verses 6 to 8, those, that's the key part of the passage. There he spells out what is the necessary response to someone who has been delivered from a hopeless situation like he was. How should anyone who has received this kind of grace and deliverance from God, how should they respond? And so that key verse is verse 8. 
I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Not just obedience, but obedience from the heart. We read earlier in Titus chapter 2 that the purpose of our salvation is that we become zealous for good works. That doing the right things becomes our passion in life. That's the attitude of Jeannie on the show, if you've ever seen it. Jeannie, you know, what really struck me as a kid was how happy she was to do the will of her master, no matter what it was. Her cheerful attitude, that's, that was her defining characteristic in serving her master. And I think back onto my attitude in obedience as a child. That was not my attitude. Whenever I was obedient, in the times when I was obedient, the rare times, it was not joyful, cheerful obedience. When my parents or my teachers told me to do something, I felt like they should be happy if I just begrudgingly did what they told me to do, and that's the attitude I had most of the time. No, the kind of obedience that is the appropriate response to God's saving work is joyful obedience. Obedience with delight, as David says. This is to be the heart of the true believer. Those who are saved by grace, by the Lord Jesus Christ, from captivity to sin and death, must not only call him Savior, but they must call him Lord, and they must do it joyfully, cheerfully. We are to delight to do God's will. Can you look at your life? Is your life a testimony to that kind of obedience? I hope that your life is a testimony to obedience. Yes, we all sin. We sin daily. But increasing obedience is to be the characteristic of the born-again child of God. But is the, do, do we settle for just outward conformity to the will of God, even when we are obedient? Have we stopped striving to be zealous to do good works, to joyfully do the will of God? I hope this morning that you'll be reminded that that is the goal of our salvation, and it, too, is a work of grace. Let's look at David's salvation song here. Have you ever noticed how many of the psalms are testimonies? They're, that's what they literally are. Somebody has experienced a great act of deliverance in some way in their life, and they write this, either David or one of the other psalm writers writes a song or a poem, however you want to consider it, just to give testimony to the goodness of God that as they've experienced it. That's why here at Oakwood we often have somebody stand up, one, some, one of you, anybody from the congregation who has experienced God's goodness to come and share that with the whole body of believers. We believe that's good for you, that that's important. Matter of fact, there's a, in the ESV study Bible, I noticed there's a note on this verse that says, your reception of God's help is not complete until you give public thanks. That that's the appropriate response to God's help in your life is to give public thanks for it in some form. And so our evidences of grace testimonies during our worship service is one great opportunity for that. And it, it, because that's good for you, for your spiritual growth, to give testimony to God's goodness in your life. But it's also good for the body, for the body of believers, because we hear your testimony and we insist that the testimony be God-centered, not man-centered that it be to his glory to show what he has done in your life, to make that the focus and how you've experienced his grace at work in your life. 
But what that does is as we hear that, we say, you know what? That's the same God I serve. That's the same kind of grace that I've received. And it encourages us and strengthens us as individual believers and in our fellowship with each other. And so giving testimony has always been an important part of biblical worship. We hear David gives testimony of going from a pit to a rock. Doesn't sound all that appealing on the surface, but when you understand the metaphor he's using, it's powerful. He says in verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. Literally in the ancient Hebrew, it says, I, waiting, I waited for the Lord. Waiting, I waited for the Lord. It's translated in English, I patiently waited, but it doesn't quite get the message across. When Scripture uses anything, and it happens throughout Scripture, when Scripture uses the, the uh, repetition of a word, it's a way of intensifying it. He didn't just wait for the Lord, he waited for the Lord. It was a patient, profound, and enduring waiting upon the Lord. He wants to say, you know, it was a struggle. It was a test of my faith. But by his grace I endured and I waited for the Lord. He says that in that experience, he, he describes and he uses a metaphor of being in a, he calls it the pit of destruction, sunk at the bottom in the miry bog. It's a picture of dire circumstances. It's the idea of a very deep pit that you can't possibly get yourself out of. Not only are you at the bottom of this deep, deep pit, but there's this muck at the bottom that your feet are sinking down into. It, you know, he's trying to give you a poetic picture of a hopeless situation. I told you one of those shows I used to watch was Gilligan's Island, and there was one particular episode in Gilligan's Island that terrified me. I had nightmares about it for years afterwards. It was a this episode where they kept falling into the quicksand. You know, they're walking down through the jungle and all of a sudden they step in the quicksand and all of a sudden it just starts sucking them down in and they can't get out. Is there really quicksand? I don't even hear about it anymore. I guess it's out there somewhere. But boy, when you're a kid, you always heard about quicksand and it terrifies a kid that you can be just walking down the road and all of a sudden, and you're gone. But that's really the picture that David's trying to get across. I'm at the bottom of this pit, and I'm sinking down into the bottom. I can't get out of this. It's a hopeless situation. You know, that's typical of the Psalms. I love one of the many, many testimonies to the fact that the Scriptures are written by the Holy Spirit through apostles and prophets. One of the great testimonies that is the way in which these things are written. I'm sure if you and I were to write a testimony to how God delivered us from some hopeless situation, we would have given all the gory details. We would have gone into lots of, lots of interesting nuances about all the different situations that we found ourselves. Scripture doesn't do that. Rarely does it do that, especially in the Psalms. It speaks in metaphors. It gives visual images that we can all relate to. Whatever hopeless situation you find yourself in, you can identify with that picture, can't you? I'm at the bottom of a deep pit, and I'm sinking lower, and I can't get out of it. Maybe for some of you this morning, it's a pit that you found yourself in as a result of your own sin. Maybe you're sinking down in the muck of your own sinful nature. You're, you're caught in the sin of pornography. You're caught in the sin of alcoholism. You're caught in the sin of, of an uncontrolled anger. Maybe that's the kind of pit you're in and you've, you've lost hope that you could ever get out of that pit. 
Maybe you're not in a pit constructed by your own sin, but maybe you're in a pit as a result of somebody else's sin, or maybe even just a natural disaster, or maybe an illness. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you're in a time of financial ruin, and you just have lost hope. How am I ever going to get out of this? That's the state that David was in. We don't know the details. We don't need to know the details, but we sure know the experience. If you are in a pit of tragic circumstances and you say, but God, I've been trying to serve you faithfully. Are you punishing me? Understand that sometimes we're in that pit of hopelessness as a test of our faith. Not that we have some particular sin we have to confess, but just that Lord has put us there to strengthen our faith and to do a good work in our lives. I mean, David was a man after God's own heart, and yet he found himself in a pit of hopelessness. There's actually a story in Scripture about Jeremiah's life, the prophet Jeremiah, where he was literally thrown in a pit. He was trying to preach the word of God. That's all. He was sent to preach the word of God about the fall of Jerusalem and the king of, king of uh, Israel, the king of Judah, actually threw him in a pit, a cistern, a deep cistern. And it says in the text, it literally says, his feet sank in the mud. And yet, all he was trying to do was preach the word. So, we can all find ourselves in a place of losing hope and feeling lost and unable to extricate ourselves from the situation. And I guarantee that if you're a Christian, you've been there at some point in your life because the word pit is very often used in the Old Testament for the grave, death. We were all headed to death and eternal damnation, all of us. We're in that hopeless pit, sinking in the muck. But David says, I cried out to God, and as he says, he inclined to me and heard my cry. I cry, you know, an act of trust. Lord, I can't save myself, but you can save me. And he cried out to God, he put his trust in God. And there's that language of Psalm 8 again. If you were with us last week, we looked at Psalm 8. Where David said, what is man that you're mindful of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? Here is God bending down. That's literally what it says in Hebrew. He bent down to take notice of this situation that David had gotten himself into. Or that had been thrust upon David. He bent down. He was mindful of him. He took notice of him. And he cared for him. And to be specific, David goes on to say, He lifted me out of that pit. But notice it wasn't just a mere extraction. He says he lifted me out of the pit and he set me down on a rock. A firm place for my feet. An unmovable place, a secure place, a trustworthy place. The Lord is my rock is the testimony of the Psalter. Well, then in verses 4 and 5, having told this story in poetic terms, David then turns to testimony. And he calls out, as a matter of fact, some of this is just, I think, a transcript of his testimony before the congregation of God's people. And he says, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Look at what the Lord has done in my life. He can do this in your life, too. And so he gives testimony. But in verse 6, he very quickly says, that giving testimony and gathering with God's people for worship, that that's not an adequate response. It needs to be more than that for those who have been delivered by God. 
He says, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. Burn offering and sin offering you have not required. Now, if you know the Old Testament, you know the history of God's people, you know where David was in the history of redemption, you say, wait a minute, David. God did require burnt offerings. God did require you know, sin offerings. He, he required animal sacrifices as part of the worship of the tabernacle and the temple. What do you mean he doesn't require these things? Well, of course, God did require it, but why did God require animal sacrifices? Why did God require that the people of God bring a perfect animal and have the blood of that animal shed and spread upon the altar before he would accept those people into worship? Well, it was because of sin. The wages of sin is death, was the lesson that was taught by the animal sacrifices. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, according to God's word. And so these rituals were put in place to point to the need for God's salvation, to point to the need for redemption. But that's not what we were originally designed for, to offer animal sacrifices. He's talking about God's original intent in creating man. His original intent was to have us bear his image completely in body and soul, meaning that we delight to do his will. That was God's purpose. That's what's required of us. What's required of us is perfect righteousness in thought, word, and deed. That's what's required of us. And the fact that we have so abundantly broken God's law and have not lived righteously in thought, word, and deed is the reason that the Old Testament saints had to offer animal sacrifices to show their hope in the promise of a coming Redeemer. You know, David learned this principle that, that offering sacrifices is not the ultimate response to God's deliverance. He learned that from observing the life of his predecessor, King Saul. Do you remember the great failing of King Saul? I mean, King Saul committed a lot of sins but the one that he had his kingship taken away for had to do with sacrifices remember he was commanded to destroy the Amalekites as an agent of God's judgment upon that nation but Saul chose to preserve to withhold from that total destruction some livestock and the king King Agag of the Amalekites himself and so God sent Samuel, his prophet, to confront Saul. He said, what is this you have done? Why am I hearing livestock? Why is this king still alive? Why have you disobeyed the Lord? And King Saul's response was, oh, no, it's all good, because I'm going to offer these, this livestock. I'm going to offer it as a sacrifice to God. That'll make him happy. You remember how Samuel replied with the word of the Lord. This is what God said in response. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion as is, is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. You hear what he's saying? He said you can't divorce religious observance, even doing it according to the law, you can't divorce that from obedience. You can't say, well, it's okay if I'm disobedient as long as I do the right religious observances. 
That has always been an abomination in the eyes of the Lord. He compares it to divination and idolatry. To think that you can disobey the law of God and yet keep the religious ceremonies and think that you're still acceptable to God. God did not save us in order to make us religious. God saved us in order to make us righteous. That's the purpose of our salvation. In Isaiah chapter 1, we have this condemnation of the idea that just by doing religious things, you can somehow counterbalance the sin in your life. Listen to what God says through Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you have come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. God is offended by worship that is meant to be a substitute for a desire to do his will. But yet many professing Christians live that lifestyle. They live for the world, they live for themselves, they live in sin all week long, but they think they're okay with God as long as they go to church for an hour on Sunday morning. Or if they perform some ritual before a priest, or if they give up some thing for Lent, or you know, some other religious ritual meant to please God so that he won't look upon their sin. Verse 6 gives the key to becoming righteous in God's sight. He says there, but you, this is David speaking, but you have opened my ear. This is the key. How, do, how does a sinner like you and me we all know that this so characterizes our life. How do we become like David is talking about? Well, how do we reach that goal? Well, the key is there. You have opened my ear. That's how we get to the point of delighting in God's will. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, you have dug out ears for me. That's what, literally what it says. In other words, we were deaf to the word of God. But he has opened our ears. He has opened our eyes. He has given us a new heart. He's taken away our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh if we're truly born again. That's what regeneration is. That's what David's alluding to here. A new heart, and the result of having a new heart is that you delight to do the will of God. Now, again, not perfectly, not for a very long time as the process of sanctification brings you to that point, but it begins when God digs out your ears, opens your eyes, changes your heart, and puts within you a desire to do the will of God. It's a gift from God that comes by grace. We call it regeneration. That's what's meant in verse 8 by your law is within my heart. 
to have a desire to keep the law. He's not talking about memorization of the law there. That's the law in your mind. It's the law in your heart. A desire to obey the law that comes as a result of God's saving work. You know, that's the central principle. Even when the law was given back, Deuteronomy is the laying out of the law for the people of God. But in the beginning of Deuteronomy, in chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Well, how do you do that? Well, the next verse tells you. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. It's to be a heart obedience, not a coerced obedience, but an obedience from the heart, delighting to do the will of God. Religious rituals apart from a willing heart are useless. Even obedient acts, even outwardly doing the things that the law requires, doing it outwardly, but not doing it out of a joyful delight in your heart to glorify God and to draw near to God, if that's not what's at the root of your good behavior, then it's useless in the sight of God. That's what the prophet means when he says, all your righteousness is as filthy rags. It looks righteous to the eyes of men, but in the eyes of God, he looks at your heart and says, you know, I'm not doing, you know, he's not doing this willingly. He's doing this begrudgingly. He's doing it for some, for some selfish purpose. And that's what a lot of human righteousness is. I remember hearing about the little boy who was sent to sit in the corner as punishment. And as he got there, he angrily shouted, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. And so much of our repentance looks like that. Yeah, I'll do what I'm supposed to do, but I'm not happy about it. And that's not acceptable. That's not the kind of righteousness we were created for. It's not the kind of righteousness that we were saved for. It's not why we were brought out of that dark, deep pit, out of the muck. That's not why we were saved. We were saved to be zealous for good works, Titus says. And that brings us to the source of our hope. How does this happen? Where do we get this new heart? How do we get this new heart? Well, that's where we get to verse 7. Verse 7 doesn't really fit very well if you think of David writing this. What, what in the world, what does David mean? Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will. What does he mean by that? Well, the writer of Hebrews helps solve that mystery. The writer of Hebrews tells us, as a matter of fact, if you turn over to chapter 10 for just a minute, fascinating exposition of Psalm 40 in Hebrews 10. In the beginning of that chapter, well, you know, in the whole book of Hebrews, what the writer is trying to do, he's really addressing Jewish Christians in the first century. Jewish Christians who, when the Christian life got hard, they got tempted to want to go back to Judaism, unbelieving Judaism. The distortion of Old Testament teaching that taught a religion of works, basically, that taught that you could earn your, basically, right standing with God by striving to be obedient and doing all the religious rituals. He's trying to plead with these Jewish Christians, don't go back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Don't go back to those old rituals. They're done with. Christ has fulfilled all of that. He was the one that, that all those rituals pointed to. He was the one that the word of God pointed to. 
And so he's saying at the beginning of chapter 10, blood sacrifices can never make perfect those who draw near, who draw near to God for worship. He says those sacrifices were a reminder of sins, and it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He's saying these were pointing to a far greater sacrifice. And then that's where he picks up in verse 5. And notice he's quoting Psalm 40, and this is what he says. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, his incarnation, his birth, when he added a, a perfect human nature to his divine nature, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. He's saying this was written about Christ. Christ is the one that the law, the word of God was written about. Jesus said all these things were written about me. And I have come to live a life of perfect righteousness. Doing good works from the heart. What you and I are incapable of doing, God sent his eternal son to live as a human being, a perfect human being, and to perfectly live the Christian life in thought, word, and deed, to do the will of God from the heart in every instance. You notice that the writer quotes here in Hebrews 10, he quotes this, the, a, a different translation. It's the Greek translation. In the early church, they used the Greek translation of the Old Testament, not the Hebrew, most of the time. And so he translates the Greek translation, which slightly changes what it says there in uh, verse 5. He says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. He puts it, the, the Greek translation puts in there, a body you have prepared for me instead of a, my ears you have opened. And, I, and that's by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the writer of Hebrews says, you know what? The Septuagint translation, translation is actually correct here because it's pointing to Christ. It's pointing to his perfect human nature. It's the Son of God saying, I have come and you have prepared a perfect human nature for me, uncorrupted by sin. And I delight to do the will of God. And then it goes on, having said that Christ fulfilled that. Listen to what Hebrews 10 says beginning in verse 8. When he said the above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. And then in parentheses, he says, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He says, he does away with the first. What's the first? The animal sacrifices. He does away with the animal sacrifices so that he can establish the second. What's the second? Delighting to do the will of God. You see, this is how you get that new nature. This is how you get that new heart. This is how you get that ability to love God and to want to do his will, to delight in his will. It comes through what Jesus Christ did at the cross. Because those animal sacrifices could not atone for sin. It took the shed blood of a perfect human being like you and me. Jesus Christ, the only one who is suitable to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
and having died for our sins and paid the full penalty and borne the wrath of God that our sins deserved, he was raised from the dead, made the Lord of life, and given, he now gives to us the gift of this life, this new heart, this new nature. We receive him by faith, we trust in him as our atoning sacrifice, and he gives us the gift of a new heart that desires to do the will of God. That's salvation. Jeremiah gives a prophecy twice in his, in the book we call the book of Jeremiah. There's two, there twice he gives the same prophecy, once in chapter 23 and once in chapter 33. Listen to what it says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. That's one of the titles of Christ that I love so much. The Lord our righteousness. How do we become righteous in the sight of a holy God in, in, in light of all of our sins and thought, word, and deed? How do we become righteous? We need the Lord our righteousness. He becomes our righteousness. And then once God looks upon us as being righteous because Christ has given us his righteousness, then he can begin to transform us into the image of Christ so that we can too say, along with our older brother Christ, I delight to do your will, O God. In chapter 31 of of, uh, Jeremiah's prophecy, He describes the effect of the deliverance of this righteous branch. He says, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The new covenant, the finished work of Christ, makes possible this new heart with the law of God written on it, so that when we obey, we obey from the heart. We in the new covenant have a greater fullness of this promise than David had. This is the rock. When he took us out of that pit of captivity to sin and death, and he took us out and he set us down on a rock. The rock is the Lord. The Lord, our righteousness. The righteousness of Christ. That's a firm place for our feet to stand before a holy God. It's an unchangeable righteousness. It's a righteousness that can't be taken away even in the smallest portion. It belongs to us for eternity. And it is the unchangeable, unmovable basis upon which we have an eternal relationship with God. And it is the basis of his promise to give us a new heart. And to transform us slowly, step by step, into the image of God. With this new desire that he plants within us. And this is what David gives testimony to. He says in verse 9, I have told the glad news of deliverance. I'm not sure why the ESV translates it that way, because in the original Hebrew, the word is righteousness. I do understand why they took that step in translation, but it's actually paraphrasing, or it's actually uh, interpreting. The word is righteousness. I have told the good news of righteousness, and that's what gospel preaching is. To tell people not only how they can be seen by God as righteous in this very moment if they'll put their faith in the death and resurrection of Christ, but also the means by which they might become people who delight to do the will of God. It is the good news of righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. 
Martin Luther, before his conversion, was terrified by a particular verse in the book of Romans. It's verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul says that the gospel of God reveals the righteousness of God. And that phrase terrified him because he already knew God to be holy, perfect, pure in every way, too pure to look upon sin. And he was so aware of his own sin, the idea that the gospel revealed the righteousness of God terrified him and made him want to run away. But when Martin Luther got converted is when he studied and studied and studied in Romans and came to chapter 3 and finally understood what it means there in Romans chapter 3 verse 21 when it says, when it, where it defines the righteousness of God as Paul meant it in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 3 beginning in verse 21 where it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's a righteousness that is given to us. It's the gift of God's righteousness given by Christ to us who put our faith in him. That's why Paul then turns over, if you turn over to chapter 6, that's why he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. You see, the gospel, the good news about Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead is the means by which you get this new heart that delights to do the will of God. That's why Paul at the end, in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul in great detail explains every nuance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he gets to chapter 12 and he transitions from, from explaining the gospel to talking about what are the implications of the gospel. And this is how he, st he starts that section in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the gospel. Not just that he saves you from the penalty that you, you deserve for your sins, but that he has put your feet on a rock so that you can never ever be accused again of sin because you wear the righteousness of Christ. And not only that, but he has given you a new heart so that you might delight to do the will of God. And that's real life. That's the good life, is doing the will of God from the heart because you delight in it. You see, this is what we need to teach our kids at Christmas. So often, what our kid, the lesson our kids get from Christmas is, you know, try really hard to be good so that you can get a lot of presents. And that's not the message of Christmas. David's teaching us the lesson of Christmas, that God sent his only son to become one of us and then to live the perfect life that we cannot live so that we can look to him as the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice that paid for all our sins 
and we can be raised to new life in him that is now free from captivity to sin and death and so that we've been given this new heart to love God and to love doing his will, to be zealous for good works. Do you know how the show I Dream of Jeannie ends? She is a long-term servant to Tony as her master, but you know how it ends? She marries him. And that's how our story ends too. We were captive to sin and death. He delivered us. He took us out of the deep pit, out of the miry muck. He set our feet upon the rock. And he gave us a new heart to love him and to love doing his will. And the end of the story is the bride, the church, the church is the bride. He will get to marry the bridegroom, Jesus himself. And we spend eternity in that loving relationship with our Lord and Savior. That's the good news of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, when we look at our hearts, we, still, we see so much of the love of the world, the love of self, the love of sin. But Lord, we have put our hope in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here this morning. We believe in the message of Christmas that the eternal Son of God became man. That he was truly God and fully God and truly man and fully man. And he lived this perfect life that we want to live. I thank you, Lord, that you look upon us and see his righteousness. And I thank you that the promise of your word is that one day we will not only be robed in his righteousness, but our hearts and our minds will be completely like his. And we will love to do your will in every possible way. We look forward to that day. That is our hope. That's what we live for. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.